Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. You'll meet people you wouldn't normally meet, but we're glad you did. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts and see how these 21st century explorers are changing the world one lecture, one experiment or one interview at a time. Stick with me. You won't get accused of any weird stalking, just a bit of eavesdropping. Today we've hitched a ride in the backpack of reporter Dr Andy Horvath and we're down at Albert Park Lake in Melbourne, Australia. We're looking for a group of volunteer biologists who are wondering if bright city lights influence the quality of sleep in local birds, especially the swans. It's Australia, so the swans here are black, just so you have the right visual in your head. Can I pat the signet? Oh my goodness. Oh my... Oh, seriously soft. That's the seriously excited Andy Horvath. They produce an incredible amount of poo. That's probably the, the main thing that surprises people when they come and volunteer is just how messy it is. And that is Annie Oldsbrook. She's a PhD student at the University of Melbourne who's exploring urban bird welfare. Yep, she is looking out for our feathered city friends. The swans are usually okay. <laughs> um, used to us. Yeah, they get used to you. Um, but yeah, they usually don't really peck you unless they're very, very agitated. And that's a few of Annie's posse of dedicated volunteers. It is a beautiful day in some beautiful surrounds. So before we head down to the water's edge to bother some swans, Andy sat down on a park bench for a peaceful lakeside chat with Annie to find out a little bit more about our urban birds hero and some of the work that she does. Annie Osbrook, what do you tell people at barbecues that you do? I tell people that I study how light pollution affects urban birds. And then that often leads to more questions, which ends up explaining that I catch swans, which people always get really interested in. So what made you think, I must get into this? I studied zoology and I was always interested in animals and conservation and animal behaviour. And so I decided I wanted to do a PhD And so then I started contacting people at Melbourne Uni and seeing what people were doing that I found interesting. And the combination of studying swans, sleep and light pollution really appealed to me because it's sort of interesting in itself but also appealed to me in that kind of conservation sense, like the chance to maybe find solutions to a problem. We're here at Albert Park Lake in Melbourne, Australia, and you've sent off your volunteers to catch some swans with loaves of bread. What exactly do you want to explore from these swans? Once you catch them, what do you do? There's a few things happening. I've put some data loggers on swans to record their movements. Sort of like Fitbits on swans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's an accelerometer, which is essentially like a Fitbit on swans, and they've also got temperature loggers on each foot. And so that can help me to tell whether the swan's active, whether the swan's in the water or whether it's on land or whether it's on a nest. And so I'm looking at how those behaviours vary with time of day and whether they vary with exposure to light at night. You're doing this research in order to work out whether or not the swans are disturbed by light pollution and the general well-being of urban birds. What are the patterns so far? Because you're also studying pigeons, is that right? Yes, I'm studying pigeons as well. Um, So I have some data on on their sleep, so I'm looking at how exposure to streetlights at night affects their sleep. I've looked at one pigeon so far and 
there seemed to be a very strong result there. That's just, you know, obviously one pigeon, two nights, so I can't say much at this stage. But if, if the rest of the results are like that, then it's, there seems to be a strong effect of light at night on sleep, which makes sense based on behavioural studies that have been done so far. With the swans, I'm taking some blood samples to try out a melatonin assay and try and get that going. And then the next step will be to take swans from Albert Park to a wildlife sanctuary and set up an experiment there so I can set up street lights, see how that affects melatonin, see how it affects sleep in a more naturalistic setting than what I've been able to do with the pigeons. By the way, a melatonin assay is simply an assessment for melatonin via a blood sample, in case you were wondering. When you talk to people, what misconceptions do people have about urban birds or swans? I think the main one is that black swans are super aggressive. They expect us to get beaten up by them or for it to be really difficult. And they also ask a lot, do swans bite? But they they really don't. Their main weapon is their wings because they've got a, a sharp kind of elbow bone that they try to hit you with when you grab them. But they're not particularly aggressive unless they're defending something. So... When people feed them, I think they tend to get more aggressive because they're all congregating in the one place and they're all fighting over these scraps of food. But, yeah, they're, they're not as aggressive as I think they have a reputation for. I don't think they're as aggressive as the Northern Hemisphere white swans as well. You work with a whole lot of volunteers from the University of Melbourne and even some from Monash University and La Trobe University. You've got a posse that comes down <laughs> here every time to help you catch swans. What have they learnt from you and what have you learnt from them? It's really good, actually. It's good having people coming down to help out, and it's really nice having the same people come and help out a lot. So some of the volunteers here today, like Marcy and Lauren, have been out with me heaps of times before, and so they can back me up too. Like when I was busy trying to do things and people come up and they want to know what I'm doing, and if I don't really want to put the welfare of the swan at jeopardy by trying to respond to the public, but they can... They can help me out with that, which is always really nice. And um, having people who, who know what to do as well, like if I've grabbed a swan and I need help you know, getting it under control, then they know what needs to be done. It can be quite difficult to explain on the spot sometimes with someone who's coming out for the first time. So they're quite a dedicated bunch. Yeah, they really are. And it's, I think it helps too that this is research that's done in Melbourne in a kind of a nice area and... It's easy to just pop down for the afternoon if you have some spare time. So, like, that's really nice. What's a memorable moment so far in catching swans and taking blood samples and checking their Fitbits? Yeah, there's, there's been some interesting catches where, um, particularly if I'm with volunteers who haven't been out a whole lot, then sometimes it comes down to me a bit more. There was one situation where we were catching swans on land and we surrounded them, and I don't even know how, but I somehow ended up with a swan in each hand. Like, I was holding two swans and they were both flapping and I was just sort of crouched with my eyes closed waiting for someone to help me out. And, yeah, that, that worked out fine. We've had... Oh, some of the encounters with the public as well are interesting, like parents with their kids and you find out that this 10-year-old wants to study animals, wants to be a vet or wants to study zoology and they come and they watch what I'm doing and ask questions and that's really nice. I've had some people too, like I had a cyclist riding past and saw that we'd just grabbed a bunch of swans and there were signets running around at our feet that we were trying to catch and... 
I try I actually usually try to wear a shirt that says black swan research so that people know what I'm doing but sometimes uh, like if it's cold I've got a jumper over the top so we really we look like a bunch of young people just <laughs> messing with wildlife so so she started yelling and asking what we were doing and um, I'm trying to get swans under control and tell the volunteers what to do while sort of calling out it's research it's fine we're from Melbourne Uni and yeah she was really good actually once once we'd sort of got things under control I was able to just jog over and have a quick chat with her and she was like oh yeah no no that's fine so it is good that people actually do stop and check what we're doing well I think it's time we went down by the water to gather together the beautiful swans perhaps try and get some blood samples and check their Fitbits let's see if they've achieved their 10,000 step goals for the day so Annie, do you have a favourite swan that you sometimes see regularly when you come to do your research work? Yeah, I do have a favourite. His name's K40, though we call him Oliver because he was orphaned at a very young age. He had a couple of siblings and for a while there were the three of them hanging out together without any parents. And they were quite small, like grey and fluffy still. And then, I, I don't think his siblings made it, but we'd see him around and he... He seemed to be able to survive by outwitting the older swans, I think, because as a signet he was getting beaten up a bit by the adult swans. You'd see them trying to chase him off their territory a lot. But there was a space under one of the jetties over near the sailing club and he was small enough to fit in there, but the adult swans weren't. So you'd see him getting chased and he'd duck under there wait until the adult swan was gone and then you'd just see him poke his head out and check that the coast was clear and then come out again. He'd hang out on land a lot as well, I think, to avoid getting picked on. So one of my friends actually drives through this park every day to go to work and so she'd be texting me regular updates saying, I saw the signet again, it was on its own on the grass and I haven't seen it for a few days, is it okay? Do you know if it's all right? And I think from being, you know, maybe, maybe it's a bit anthropomorphised, but I think from raising himself a bit he's developed some quirks as well like he always seems to be eating as though it's his last meal like really ripping into the grass you can identify him from a distance if you see a swan that doing doing something a little bit unusual it'll be like that's Oliver that's got to be Oliver. Talking to your volunteers they said that uh, Oliver's really friendly and he comes up to you and that's why they like him. Yeah he's he doesn't seem as afraid of people as a lot of the swans are and I think he sees people as a source of food as well. So if you put your hand down, he'll actually bite you. Not because he's being aggressive, but actually he's just trying to eat everything. Looking for scraps. Yes. So they're not aggressive. I don't like they are a bit. But, yeah, a bit but they're basically but... just like Pac-Man trying to get at some food. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can we see Oliver? Is Oliver here? Yeah, that's him. That's K40. Ah, uh, Oliver! <laughs> My man! He's getting better at looking like a real swan now, I think. He's, he's blending in a bit. <laughs> he actually hangs out with the other swans now too, rather than on his own. All right, the swans are all here. Oliver's been spotted and he's okay. It's time to try and catch some swans and cygnets. Which one are we going to catch? Um, hopefully that one there, the, the little cygnet, and that's mum and dad there. Ah. Now, did he just peck at her? Yes, <laughs> oh, they're all fighting for food. Yeah, yeah. So when you bring them all together like this, they tend to get a lot more, um, a lot more tense. Particularly when there's signets as well. Like these two, are, you can see they're keeping a pretty, pretty close eye on their baby. And these ones have their baby here that's sticking close yeah, so to how them. How are we going to get between them? 
yeah, it's going to be difficult. It's it's hard when there's a big group of them here like this as well because sometimes you want to grab the one that's like right at the back of the pack and it keeps getting pushed back by the other swans. Yep. These ones seem to be hanging near the front though, so we might be able to have some luck with them. Okay, Annie is in position with Andy a safe distance out of harm's way. The volunteers are all at the ready. But you can't just lunge at the swans and expect to have a bird in the hand just like that. It does take special skills, as one of Annie's intrepid volunteers will attest. Lauren, how do you catch a swan? Um, well, there's two ways to do it, either on land or in the water. Uh, if you're catching in water, the best way is to bait them with a little bit of white bread so they come up to you nice and friendly. Uh, and then once they're close enough, you want to grab them by the base of their neck, which is nice and strong, and pull them out of the water and try to get your hand over the front of their wings so they're not flapping in your face and they won't be a danger to themselves and then you have your other volley so Marcy helped me with this one Um, she ties the rope around the wings and around the feet so there's a bit more security and then we'll take the swan back to the area here and on land it's usually you need a few more volleys maybe about four or five Um, four or five and you form a circle around the swan and try to get in the middle of the circle so someone can come on top and close the wings up to catch this one. See, not as simple as it looks. I think we'll let the experts have a go at it. Now, just a small alert. You're going to hear some squealing from the young cygnets. Rest assured, they're all okay. No one is being harmed. Annie and the volunteers know what they're doing. looks and sounds like it's hard work, and it is, but a signet has been caught and is now going to be assessed. Eddie, can you tell us what you're just doing here? So right now I'm just about to take a blood sample from this signet so that I can, uh, we can check the paternity for the signet, so check who the mother is, check who the father is, and we'll also use it to genetically determine the signet's sex. Mother S71. Yep, perfect. Okay, so I'll just see how we go here. And signet seems quite calm. It's doing a little bit of squealing at the moment, but um, I'm surprised how calm they are. Yeah, so it's a little bit distressed, but it's um, often. So what um, Angela's doing right now, and the signets eyes are in the shade so that often helps to keep them a bit calm and Signet's mum is right here so right now Signet's calling to mum and mum's just keeping an eye. Andrew you're a volunteer here I noticed the Signet has um, pooped on your jacket. It certainly has um, a couple of times actually yeah bright green isn't it uh, yeah. <laughs> been eating some algae I suppose. <laughs> For a small signet, that's a lot of poop on (laughs) Andrew's shirt. They produce an incredible amount of poo. That's probably the the main thing that surprises people when they come and volunteer is just how messy it is. Um, Particularly when you first grab them, they make a big mess. Can I pat the signet? Oh my goodness. Oh my. Oh, seriously soft. 
lashes. This one will lose this soft down oh. within the next month or two. Alright, we might let them go now. So, baby's done. Actually, we'll weigh mum as well before we let them go. So, maybe if you hold this one again. Yeah. You're going to get pooped again. Yeah, I am. Just clean myself off. Dr Andy Horvath is well known to all of us as an incisive academic. She likes to get to the bottom of a subject by asking the hard questions. Um, S84, I think I'll call him Kevin. Uh, I don't know if it's girl or not, but we can change names later. He's looking at me. Hasn't stopped looking at me. They get fed a lot, so they often approach people looking for food. And actually the black collars are males and the white collars are females. So that's... that's Where do you look? Like, what do its ghoulies look like? Um, it's very difficult to find them. You have to sort of poke a lot. And the males do have a penis, but it, you have to poke a bit to make it come out. So I don't enjoy that. The swan doesn't enjoy that. So often what we use instead is a measure of the back of the head to the tip of the bill. And that tends to be a fairly good measure of male or female, but there is some overlap. So that's also partly why I take the blood samples so that we can genetically determine whether they're male or female. Dr Andy Horvath asking the ghoulies question no one dares to ask. So the samples have been carefully taken, the cygnets and swans have been assessed and now it's time to let them go. Now listen carefully for a particular honking sound. So there's mum, dad and the cygnet all swimming off. Yeah and when they come together so they do that call you might have heard where they honk at each other and they bob their heads up and down so that's called a triumph and that's a common thing that the families do when they get back together or the pair will do if they've just chased another swan off their territory. Thank you. Annie you're awesome. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I agree you are awesome Annie Olsbrook and so are your volunteers. Good luck with your research into urban birds and the light pollution that may or may not affect them. As Annie continues her work, we'll find out soon enough what the case may be. Hopefully we won't be needing to see black swans with shades or sleep masks on in the future. So, if you're walking along Albert Park Lake one day and you see some eager t-shirted researchers and volunteers chasing, catching and assessing swans, don't be concerned or alarmed. Chances are it's Annie and her dedicated team doing good work for our urban birds. We've been eavesdropping on expert Annie Olsbrook and her posse of intrepid volunteer biologists. If you'd like to hear more about Annie's work, try our Big Sister podcast Up Close, where you'll hear more of what Annie has to say. Like this. We live in the cities and if we are surrounded by wildlife that we care about and we get those positive interactions, then people are more likely to care. And so if we can't care about what's within our cities, then how are we going to care about what's outside them? Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights, is a production of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You'll find a full transcript on our website. This episode was recorded in December 2016. Thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Recorded by Archie Cuthbertson. Co-produced by Andy Horvath. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join me again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.